Welcome back to our three-part home buying hack series, where we are giving away all the hacks at every stage of the home buying process. We're here with Chris Hutchins, host of the excellent podcast, All the Hacks. In our first segment, we break down insider secrets to finding and working with an agent. And now we'll get into what to look for in a listing, signs that you could score a killer deal, inspections, and the myriad of ways that you can get out of a contract if the home isn't what you thought. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from six, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rental retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, rental retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. The easiest way to collect rent? RentApp. RentApp is a seamless, secure, free payment tool for small rental property owners like you and me. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit rent directly into your account. Landlords love RentApp for its unbeatable convenience. Isn't it time you made rent collection easier? RentApp, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app landlord. That's rent.app slash landlord. All right, let's get into it. And I want to talk about making that offer now, right? Like, let's say someone's gone through this process. They pick their agent. They've figured out what they're doing and, and they find a house and they're trying to decide, is this a good house? So let's start with that before we get to the offer. It's like you have a place in mind. You're looking at this listing. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't have an agent yet. But what are the things that are really important for someone to be paying attention to when they're looking at a listing, either online or in person? All right, what do you look for? Uh, I like I like to find stuff that needs a little bit of work, uh, a little TLC personally on my end, just because I don't really like paying the premium of someone else's fine tuned work that I probably don't like anyway. So I don't want to go in and usually do like a full rehab. That's not really my space. But I'm looking for something that I can really spice up with a nice paint job, 
maybe doing a lighter cosmetic rev- uh, renovation, like changing out the floors or something like that. So I'm not necessarily looking for top tier. I'm just looking for something that I can come in and kind of add my touch to. I-, I don't really like paying for turnkey properties personally, but it-, it all comes down to what your what your buy box is. What about you, David? Uh, in a hot market like where we are today, <clears throat> it's usually a good time to buy real estate because when there are more buyers than there are product to buy, the odds of prices increasing are favorable because you've got a favorable supply demand ratio there. However, it becomes harder to get into the asset in those environments, which is why most people get discouraged. There's also an element where people aren't educated. So they all chase after the same homes. They want the ones with the best listing photos, the best locations. They're moving ready. That gives you that emotional tingle that you just love. Those are the houses everyone looks for. You really want to go against the grain. Sometimes bad smells can really benefit you when you're trying to buy a home because it's going to turn off a lot of your competition. Ugly floor plants. People don't realize it's usually not as expensive as you think to move walls around. But when it's got a closed off kitchen, you can't see what's going on in the family room. The wife's thinking, I can't see what the kids are doing. I just don't like it. That's as far as they go. They don't realize that you could spend $2,000 and move a wall. You can see everything that's going on there. Then painting and flooring, you can really, uh, you can fix homes up for a lot less than what people think today. But you have to see the opportunity, not the move and ready product. And so how does how long the house has been on the market play into this? When you see something that's been on for a while or you know, we'll get to the to, to something that just came on after. Hey, I mean, it's just like online dating, right? I don't do online dating, but I know how the thing works. If she's been single for six days, she's probably not in a rush to take your response and go out with you Friday. But if she's been single for six months, she's probably going to give you a little bit more attention when you send that message. When a seller first puts their house on the market, they have all the leverage. They have tons of interest. People are going to look at their home. Showings are being scheduled. Agents are calling all excited. We really love the house. Do you have any other offers? It's this frenetic, crazy, emotional pace where the sellers are trying to think of how can I leverage this to get as much money as possible, which is really where I'm trying to guide my clients away. I don't want you in that feeding frenzy. If no one buys that house after 14 to 21 days, interest is starting to slow. By day 30, day 40, it they're getting worried. Okay, it's not who's the best guy that I can take to get to take me to prom. It's am I going to prom at all? I just want a date. Does anyone want to buy my house? I'm stuck. I might not be able to move. And I write about this in some of the books that I've published for Bigger Pockets for Agents. There's this spectrum of fear and greed. We usually all start off on the greed side. And as you slide across, you end up in the fear side and you're worried. I might not sell the house at all. So in most markets, depending on what your average days on market, like this wouldn't apply in an area with $7 million homes that tend to sit on the market for six months before they sell. But for your regular starter homes, they should be selling in less than 30 days in most markets in the country. So the minute you get past that point, you're going to start seeing some worry in sellers and they will be open to more aggressive offers or terms that are more favorable to the buyer. What happens if you are in a hot market and let's say you know, you've know you di- identified a neighborhood, you've looked, maybe a house comes on every two or three months and you know like this is what I want. You know, you say the moment that house comes on the market, it's hot. It's the worst time. Uh, is there a way to get ahead of that? Is there a way to find homes before they get on the market and buy them? Is that finding the right agent? Or how do you kind of get what might be a hot home uh, before it's hot? Rob, what have you been doing? You've gotten a couple deals this way. Yeah. So there are definitely a, a few. I mean, there's, let's see, there, there's the creative finance and the sub two deal, right? And that's effectively where you're cold calling a bunch of property owners oh, and also wholesaling where you cold call property owners and basically try to buy the property directly from them versus going the realtor route. Uh, that's a very popular niche within real estate. 
But honestly, I think uh, having a really big network of realtors that you're friendly with is super important. And more than just having like a bunch of realtors in your network, finding a realtor that I see, and this is sort of where the marketing thing kind of comes into play too. But finding a realtor that's very good at at marketing and having a vast network of realtor friends that can pass each other deals to you or pass uh, deals to each other, that to me is super important. Because if you find someone that's like very new and very green in the industry, they probably don't have a lot of other real estate colleagues necessarily. But if it's someone that's been working in the industry for a while, they have the opportunity to find all these deals before they ever hit the market. So I have realtors that are texting me all the time that they're like, Hey, my bud just sent me this. It's going to hit the market next week. They're interested in selling it before even going to market. Are you interested? And I'll look at a deal much quicker much faster and much more intentionally knowing that I've got first dibs on it. Do you think that applies uh, for kind of consumer? Should I, if I'm looking to buy a home in a neighborhood, should I just talk to all the agents in the neighborhood and say, hey, well, I'm looking to buy at home. There's nothing on the market I want right now, but I just want you to know if you can find me something, I'm ready to go and just talk to 10 agents. Do, do agents like that kind of behavior or? No, not really. Because you kind of send the message that you're looking for an open relationship. And they're wanting a committed relationship. So it doesn't benefit me as an agent if you come and, and you're talking to 12 agents in the area. If you find me the deal, I'll buy it from you. That sounds great, but I don't need to sell it to you. If I get a listing, it's so hot right now. Everyone's going to want to buy it, right? I don't have to discount my commission. There's people that would probably give me extra commission if they wanted to get that home. Or I want to be able to go to my seller and tell them I got 10 offers on their home and I want to look like a rock star to them. So I don't think the go wide instead of deep strategy works unless it's a buyer's market. When you are in those situations where it's very difficult to find someone to buy a home, we're talking 2010 when there was for sale signs everywhere, listings were all over the place, REO inventory was massive, but there weren't a lot of pre-approved buyers that were willing to step in and buy a house, then that strategy makes a lot more sense. That's where you're reaching out to all these agents saying, hey, if you get a deal, bring it to me and I'll buy it because you're the prize in that situation. They need a buyer. And you're basically saying, listen, I'm one of the few buyers that's out there that could do this thing. But if you want my business, you're going to have to make it worth my while. That works a lot better than in a market like today where you're just one out of a whole bunch of other people that are all struggling to try to get a house. Yeah. I'm actually really glad you asked that, Chris. And I'm glad you clarified, David, because Chris, for reference, I'm in about 16 different markets around the country. So I actually have a massive network of realtors in different cities, they're all very aware of exactly what I'm looking for. So when they get a pocket listing or an off-market listing, they text me directly. When I'm working in a city specifically or in a market specifically, I do want just one realtor. And that's why I say, I want to find a realtor that's got a lot of realtor friends that can help find some of those off-market deals. So it's about finding someone that's connected. Is that as simple as just seeing whose name pops up in a neighborhood most with the for sale signs, like who represented most of the sales or any other tactics for finding that super connected agent? I see why it would look that way. But there are so many real estate agents, Chris. There are. It's like the ones you see are the tip of the iceberg. There's so many of them. There's way too many agents. We don't need this many. It reminds me of a scene in the office where Dwight and Michael are walking through a crowded room and Dwight says, there's too many people. We need another plague. There's just so many agents that have flooded into the real estate space, like people coming to California in 1849 thinking they're going to strike gold. Uh, they're all fighting to try to get that seller to think of them. It's just this massive marketing campaign that every agent is throwing themselves in front of people. And now you've got investors that are also sending letters to those same people saying, I want to buy your house. I want to buy your house. Most home sellers know in general, their 
They have what everyone wants. Their home is valuable. You're probably not going to put things in your favor by just talking to every real estate agent out there and saying, hey, I want to buy a house if you get one, because if they can get a listing, it's guaranteed to sell. There's no reason they're going to go to you particularly. And then this is a very short question, but it's important. How much does the brand behind the agent matter? Is it all about the agent or is it all about the the agency they work at or the brokerage firm they work at? The only people that think a broker matters is the broker. Your clients never care who your broker is. It's 100% the agent. Yeah. So if you're trying to find someone and they're like, oh, you can work with my colleague on the... That's like red flag. It used to be really useful, just a little history lesson, because there was a time where if you wanted to buy a house that Remax was listing... You had to go to a Remax agent at that office to buy that house. So Remax had their listings. Coldwell Banker had theirs. Century 21 had theirs. And you would jump from broker to broker and look at their inventory. When we created the multiple listing service, this was an agreement between all brokerages that they would all put their listings into one central location that everybody could see, which eventually morphed into the online listing portals that we all see when we're looking for homes. That eliminated the value of going to an individual broker because now you can see everybody's inventory in the same place. And if people that you know had success using those kind of like online brokers that are like, we're just going to cut your rate and give you huge discounts. Um, You know, I I know Redfin does that. Has anyone, have you heard success stories there? Is the savings worth it? In our industry, Chris, I'm just going to tell you the, (laughs) the brutal truth. I look for a Redfin agent to be on the other side of the transaction because I know I'm going to destroy them in negotiation. (laughs) They are, they, because they don't make hardly any money on these deals. They usually go there when they're desperate for food. I'm starving. Please Redfin, give me some deals or whatever the discount brokerage is. Um, I, I've had massive success, particularly targeting listings that are Redfin listings because those Redfin agents are not all the time. I'm sure there's going to be a Redfin agent out there who's going to say, well, I'm a Redfin agent and I'm good. Yes, they do exist. I sell the most Redfin homes in this neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like right. that, that might even be an advantage to tell people to look for those because your agent is going to have a field day with their agent if you have a good one. Yeah. And la- last tip. I got one more tip here. If the, if the listing says run, don't walk. It's probably <laughs> not that great of a listing. <laughs> oh, wow. We were just talking about this yesterday. Like every listing agent is putting that their house boasts of five bedrooms, boasts of amazing light, boasts of a great view. Like these houses are just boasting all over the place. Bay Area real estate has become very arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good little episode, right? While you were listening, you could have been getting paid rent with RentApp. Landlords love RentApp because it makes rent collection a breeze. RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. Setup is straightforward for renters, and landlords don't need to download anything. Both have peace of mind with the digital transaction history. Isn't it time you made landlording a little easier? RentApp, the best way to pay or collect rent. Learn more at rent.app landlord. That's rent.app landlord. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. 
Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with credit-worthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. Okay, so let you, let's say we find this house. Whether whether it's, you know, hot home, whether it's kind of the, the home you're not sure about and you want to rehab a little bit. What do you do when you're, you've got someone and you're like, I want this home, and, or at least I want to consider it, and you're going through that diligence process of trying to figure out, doing, the, doing inspections. What are the, what's, how do you optimize that part of the process to make sure you're getting the right home at the right price? First thing for uninitiated to understand, writing an offer is not a commitment to buy a house. A lot of people get stuck dragging their feet. They don't want to write an offer. They need time to think about it. They need time to pray about it. They need time to talk to their mom. They need time to analyze it. By the time they get comfortable writing an offer, someone Someone's already bought the house. This happens a lot of the time. When you write an offer, most of the time you will include a contingency, which is an allowance to back out of the deal and recover your earnest money deposit if you find something you don't like. The main three contingencies are inspection contingencies, appraisals, and loans. So if you can't get your loan, the house doesn't appraise at value, or something is revealed when you're inspecting the home, which can in most cases literally be, I looked at the front lawn and I didn't like the way the grass looked when I inspected it. I want out. You can use that contingency for just about anything. It's okay to rush to put a house in contract and then slow down when you're in contract and order your pest inspection, order your home inspection, order your pool inspection, order your roof inspection, whatever it is that you're looking to do. Take your time from that point. And if you decide you don't like the house, you want to back out, you can without penalty. What about hot markets where there's no contingencies or, or people are saying we're not accepting offers with contingencies? Are there secret contingencies you can kind of put in? Are there ways to get out? Or what do you think about those? Here's a couple hacks that I'll share with you that normally you got to be my client if you want me to 
to know this. There are there's a rule in California that once you receive the disclosures on a property, you have seven days to back out after receiving them. It gives you time as a buyer to review these disclosures. That is not a part of the contract that realtors use. That is a state law that cannot be waived in a contract. Many times listing agents, because like I said, they're not all good. You get that discount agent. You get the person that hardly sells homes. They're arrogant. Like, oh, I'm going to sell this thing because everybody wants my listing, but they don't know those little rules. So we've had times with our clients where the listing agent did not provide the disclosures up front. They just didn't have their clients fill them out. The clients didn't want to fill them out. They didn't know why they were important. If I see there's no disclosures, then they make me waive contingencies. I will put the house in contract, wait for them to give me those disclosures, and then the timeline starts. I have a certain amount of time after they've been... I'm trying to remember if it's three days or seven days. I believe it's seven days, uh, but I have three in my head. That might be something else. Anyway, we then have a period of time to decide if we want to move forward on that house. And we backed out and they said, well, you don't have an inspection contingency. We said, yeah, here's the disclosure law. There's nothing you can do about that. That's one loophole that we've looked for. That is that that's good. You dirty dog. Everybody go back 30 seconds and listen to that again. That is so good. I can see why you didn't want to necessarily say that on the podcast. You don't want, you don't want people to know. That's exactly right. And so when I'm selling homes as a listing agent, we have our people fill these disclosures out. And bef- and if you write an offer to buy the house, the first thing I do is say, review these before we even accept your offer. I want it to be signed that you've looked at them to like start that timeline as fast as possible. Uh, I also, it's why I want people to come to me to be their agent. Because like I said, when you use an agent that doesn't sell a lot of homes, they don't know that. And even more importantly, I know that they don't know. And when I sense that as the agent, that's where I start shifting everything to protect my client. Another one that people don't think about. Usually when you buy a house, you have a period of time to send in your earnest money deposit. So there are certain times where there's two houses and you like them both and you don't know if you're going to get one. So you write offers on both houses and then you get lucky and end up with two of them. (laughs) What am I going to do now, right? Well, if you don't send the earnest money deposit in and you cancel the contract, there's really no recourse that the seller has to come back after you and say, no, you you have to give me money for this. There is no money in the escrow to take out. So when you're a buyer, either... uh put more money or put a longer period of time before you have to put in your earnest money and use that time to do your inspections, do your praying, talk to your mom, go through your due diligence. Or in some cases, I will admit, I bought houses out of state and the listing agent and the escrow company literally did not ever check to see if I sent the earnest money in. I've closed on several houses in Tennessee that I never sent the earnest money for the entire escrow and nobody even asked about it. I just sent the whole money in to close and I was fascinated that that happened, but it probably happens in more markets than people think or with agents that aren't experienced selling houses like this hypothetical Redfin agent we talked about that doesn't even know they're supposed to check. You might make it 10, 12, 14 days before an escrow officer realizes, oh, we don't have earnest money and they contact your client about looking into it, which is plenty of time to get some of those inspections done without a contingency. I love that. And it's funny because I I took that strategy we mentioned earlier where I used the seller's agent. And in fact, we made an offer uh, and they set disclosures like two hours before we made the offer. You know, it's like quick cursory glance. And fortunately, everything worked out, but I did not get reminded by the seller's agent that I might have some time to back out. And, And I think that's one of the risks when you use use the seller's agent is that, you know, they might be they might give you a little bit of the edge to try to get the deal done because they might make a little bit more, not not at the risk of kind of completely tanking the the purchase price for their their seller, but they're certainly not going to try to come up with creative ways to to 
save the deal and get you out. Yeah, of course not. Those bros ain't loyal. Not to you. That's awesome. Any any other things when you're going through inspections, things that people often miss, um, things that you learn? I feel like every time, I and it's only happened two times, but every time I bought a home, like 30 days later, I'm like, God, how did I miss that? Um, any tips for finding all the that's? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I think one thing to, to keep in mind, and Dave, David kind of hit the, the nail on the head with this one is... When you like get into escrow, if you if it's your goal to get into a property, get into escrow as fast as possible. I typically run two sets of analytics, especially with rental portfolios. I have my back of the napkin analytics, right? Where I just want to know, does this property feasibly work? If it kind of does, okay, great. I go into escrow and then I run my deep dive analytics for that, right? The reason I say this is because a lot of people, like David said, will spend so much time just getting you know, like analysis paralysis, and then they'll lose out on the deal. One of those things that typically give me a lot of analysis paralysis back back when I started was this little phrase in the listing that says, as is, seller not willing to make any repairs to the property. And so that held me back from ever buying properties or ever making offers until I figured out that that really doesn't mean anything. Uh, Really, you can buy a property as is. But David, correct me if I'm wrong, there's no actual legal paperwork that that is a sign that says that you can't actually ask for concessions. Because what's happened for me 100% of the time is I'll make the offer on an quote-unquote as-is house. And then I get the inspection report. And guess what? I ask the seller for $10,000 worth of repairs or a $2,000 credit or whatever. Right. So just because something says as-is doesn't necessarily mean that you have to take that at face value. And that's something that I think a lot of people miss when they're buying their first or second or third property. 100% correct. I laugh in the face of as is. It means nothing, nothing. <laughs> as is is a completely toothless claim. When someone says I'm selling my property as is, what they're saying is I don't want to make any further concessions. But no seller wants to make concessions. It just doesn't matter anything. The only time someone could say I'm selling a house as is, is if you have no contingencies and your earnest money deposit is so high that you would not want to back out of that deal. Because you could always back out of a deal. You'll just forfeit the earnest money and the seller will get to keep it. So let's say, Chris, you asked earlier, what if you just can't get contingencies and you, and all the things we've mentioned, you don't have any wiggle room? Well, what if you just make your earnest money deposit really low? Like, all right, no contingency, short escrow, I'll give you everything you want, $3,000 earnest money deposit. You find something you don't like in the house, worst case scenario, you lose three grand. No one loves it. But it's better than closing on a house that has a bunch of problems. So don't ever believe as is. Uh, Rob and I bought a house together, actually. And he kind of got to see behind the scenes of I was kind of working the negotiation through our realtor. So it was like me telling Rob to tell our realtor, hey, say this. And he saw some of the just the angles and the experience that when you've been through these escrows, you develop. Sellers always start off with a hard stance. I'm not taking less than three and a half million. And then three weeks, four weeks later, all of a sudden, three million starting to look like a possibility. I'm not giving them anything. Well, we get these inspection reports and hey, your pool's got some issues. Your landscaping has some issues. Your roof has some issues. It's going to be $75,000 worth of work that needs to be done. You give them a week or two of sweating that out. They start to think a little bit differently. And so oftentimes when you're the buyer, you want to gather as much as you can about what's wrong with this property, present it to the, the sellers and then wait let them marinate in their worry that you're going to back out of the deal or you're going to find something else and they're going to have to give you concessions. The knee-jerk response is almost always no, I will not do it. But if you wait long enough, those no's frequently turn into yeses. So uh, when I'm listing a house, I will have my client pay for a home inspection. 
which they never like doing because they're 500 bucks, but it saves you so much money, Chris. You would ask for other hacks that when you're in escrow. Anytime there's a inspection that's done, the perspective is as crazy as this is, is the buyer's buying a house in perfect condition. And if anything's wrong with it, they deserve a credit or they deserve repairs. They deserve something to put this house back into perfect condition. Uh, frequently, the house is in much better shape than other houses in the neighborhood, but they still use that inspection to get a discount. Short answer is if you are buying a house and it's not a situation where they have another buyer willing to pay more than you in backup position who's going to jump right in there, anything absent that, you can ask for credits. You can get a significant chunk of your closing costs paid for by the seller if you wait long enough into the escrow before you ask, almost regardless of the condition of the home. So when I'm selling houses, that's how I get people to waive the inspection contingency. You're going to get a home inspection paid for. We're going to give that to the buyer up front. We're going to say, here's what it looks like. Here's all the reports. If you don't like it, find another house. But if you want this house, this is what you're buying and you're going to waive those contingencies. So when you're selling, that's what you want to do. When you're buying, you want to avoid it. And then one practical thing to look for that everybody misses is what we call the sewer lateral connection. So there is a sewer line that runs from your home out to usually the sidewalk where it connects to the city sewer line. Those uh, plumbing lines, if it's an older home, usually like running through the front yard, can become infiltrated by tree roots. This is a crazy thing. But when the roots are just pushing against that PVC pipe for years, they will eventually push through there and then the roots will grow and these sewer lines can become clogged and they're very expensive to fix. So one thing I tell every home buyer who's trying, like, what could I miss? What's the that thing that I might have missed? Get that sewer line scoped by a plumber before you buy the house during your due diligence and make sure that there aren't any, any clogs because those things can be 10, 15 grand to fix when they get messed up. Yeah, that did happen to me. Uh, we did a sewer scope. There was a problem with the sewer. They sent out the plumber to quote unquote fix the sewer. And we asked for the sewer scope like an hour before closing. And they're like, oh, we didn't do one. But everyone's hands were sort of tied. It was December 31st. We were all trying to close it that year. It was going to mess everybody up. So we were just like, all right, well, I mean, if they fixed it, then in theory, we should be good. My wife moved in with our two kids. And then uh, that week, uh, ramen noodles and poop show up in our bathtub and it was a whole thing. And so lawyers got involved and it was a whole thing. And basically what happened was the, the, uh, seller's agent lied to us about what, about <laughs> the repair and basically never even told the plumber kind of thing. And so because we didn't get it rescoped and while we didn't do it while they owned it, it became a whole problem for us. So I would say from a sewer scope standpoint, if you do have to make repairs, make sure you pay for two sewer scopes. And what do you guys think about inspections when the seller's already done the inspections and they're in the disclosures? And it's, yeah, I remember when we bought this house, the disclosures were like, here's the building report. Here's the roof you know, inspection. Here's the termite inspection. Like they were all there. Do you still recommend people go do them themselves also? Usually not. Like the thought, the fear is, well, that's the seller's inspector. But the inspectors themselves are licensed professionals that don't really care who the seller is, who the buyer is. They just want to make sure they don't miss anything so they don't get sued. So what I tell my clients when you're getting inspections someone else has done is call the home inspector and ask them. Like, you can actually do that, especially if you're the one who pays for the inspection. But even if you're not, hey, I see in your inspection line 9C2 shows this. Is that something I should be worried about? You get great information from home inspectors. They give you the context that's often missing, especially because when you're first buying a house or even if you've owned a lot of houses, like Rob, you could probably admit, we don't know what a lot of that stuff means. You see a report and it lists something. You're like, well, is that a bad thing or not a bad thing? Just ask them. Do you see this very frequently? Oh yeah, every house has that issue with the 
the trusses in the attic or whatever the case is. Or no, that's very concerning. That electrical system should not be wired that way. I rarely ever see that. That's a big problem. So having those conversations with the person that inspected the house and then specifically asking, is this a common problem or is this concerning to you? Or maybe when you looked at the house, what stuff from this report stood out to you in your experience? Now you're getting 20 years of experience. So that home inspector's perspective benefiting you as a person buying the house. I like it. I'm going to rapid fire through a few things quick that I've done in this part of the process. One, um, we did get an inspection that said that there were termites. I got another inspection and found someone that was willing to crawl through a smaller hole than the original inspector was to figure out what was wrong and, and find local treatment that was going to be less expensive. So I think anytime an inspection reveals something that could be expensive, it could be worth doing a second one. Um, another one is I'm trying to figure out when we're trying to buy a home what the person cares about because sometimes there's sellers that really just want to close fast. Some want the most money. Sometimes, you know, someone might just want to make sure that the house is going to be taken care of by a good family. You know, like I find that if I could figure that out either through the agent or, you know, some other way, maybe from some neighbors, sometimes, you know, we ask the neighbors about the sellers, uh, you know, you could try to optimize what you're doing. Cause if all you want, is, if, if you know what's important to them, if they care about fast close, then maybe that's the thing you optimize for. And, you know, my brother-in-law's tip was always, it's a lot easier to extend a fast close than you think. So if you say we're going to close in 30 days, you need to push it back, you know, by day 30, it's a lot easier. Um, I'm going to throw a couple little things that I've thrown in contracts or learned and regretted not doing. Um, I'm curious if there are any last things that you try to negotiate for. For me, I always had this rule when I bought a car that's like try to get them to throw in the floor mats. And for the home, I always love getting a little extra at the end of the deal. To hear Chris's full list of extras he's been able to work into a deal, keep listening. The next part of this conversation will drop tomorrow. So make sure you're subscribed to the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast and make sure to check out Chris on the All the Hacks Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.